Welcome to the Over the Counter Podcast. I'm Mark Eastcheck. And I'm Andrew Whaley. Today, what are we going to talk about, Andrew? What are we going to talk about? Visualization, guided imagery. Well, I visualize all the time. You visualize not having to do this podcast with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, all week I visualize what it will be like to sit across the counter from you, Andrew. You know, and I don't blame do you. this podcast. The only thing that I hate about this podcast is that I can't sit across from myself. You know, I mean, I would really like to just inter- interview me. You know, you're right. That is that is kind of a poverty of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to you talk to yourself would be very interesting. I, you know, I talk, I talk to myself and I listen, and you know what? It is pretty interesting, actually. So, um, you know, what else I'm visualizing. What are you visualizing? One of those frozen yogurt bars with all the toppings. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Have you ever been to one of those that has like 27 different flavors of frozen yogurt and like 200 different toppings? No, you I, don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. They have a bunch of them in Denver. Really? Yeah, um, Yogurt Land is one of them. But they have ba- oh bars. I, I was thinking of like an ice cream bar. No, 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 like no, 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 no. Oh, like, like a bar, like, like yeah, a oh, coffee bar. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can like make your own top, put your own toppings yeah. and stuff. Yeah, there's one right here on Arapahoe, right by the Hints too. Yeah, exactly. I, I've been there once. Yeah. yeah. I don't really like frozen yogurt that much. That sounds pretty good. Concept. Um, So why? Yeah. So, but but we're not going to talk about visualizing yogurt. We're going to talk about visualizing. um, Okay. We so basically the reason we started talking about this is that I've been kind of interested here lately in like Olympic visualization, athletic visualization, guided imagery they call it, and it turns out that if you look at some Olympic athlete and you think, okay, if I asked you what percentage of their time do you think they spend actually doing their sport versus how much time they spend visualizing the sport? So how much time they spend on the skis going down the moguls and how much time do they spend visualizing the course and them doing it? Well, if, you had to, if you had to guess, what would you think? Uh, I don't know, 50-50? Right. It turns out that it's something like 78% or something like that of the time they're actually visualizing. Wow. Like when they actually go through the dive – for every time they do that, they have went through it mentally like 10 times. So it's like whenever um, – remember when Michael Phelps had that famous situation where he, um, he – when he dove in, his goggle came, on, oh, yeah. came undone and he got water in his eye? And they asked him afterwards, what was it like? He said, exactly like I expected it would be. Because he had thought through the 10 or 15 things can go wrong. What if I get a muscle cramp? What if I do this? What if I do it? And he had visualized through every one of those scenarios in detail frequently. Hmm. So when it happened, he already had the synaptic pathways in his gray matter for that evidentiality, for that, for that situation. You know, it's so funny about stuff like that is that sports, I mean, it's such a great microcosm uh, in one way, but in another way, it's so frustrating because it's like, Sports involves bodily performance. And a lot of the things we have to do, like save for retirement and like mm-hmm. parent children and, I don't know, be a good citizen, are like long-term, not-so-microcosmic kind of things that require all these little investments over a long period of time rather than like one moment of stupendous performance. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the problem is, is that... 
here here's the here's the difference that and, and you see all like kind of the new agey kind of um you know visualizing these things you want like the secret oh and all that, yeah you know? right like oh visualize a million dollars in my bank account and all or of a visualizing come, outcomes right? right yeah but it turns out that even outside of the sports world that where the real payoff is if you want to let's say you want to lose a bunch of weight and get fit right so you want to get up and go jogging in the morning up until not too long ago they would have you visualize you know being thin and being able to wear those pants that fit now and looking good at your high school reunion you'd visualize only this outcome right mm-hmm. But it turns out the real bang for your buck is what those Olympic athletes do. Before you go to bed, maybe before you eat dinner, then before you, after you eat dinner, then right before you go to bed, you visualize you're laying in bed, you're asleep, the alarm clock goes off. You wake up, you're groggy, you don't want to get out of bed, you can feel the air is cold in the room, but you're nice and snuggly under the covers. And then you visualize yourself making the decision to throw the covers off, you feel the cold air in the room hit you, you see yourself going in the bathroom, brushing the teeth, whatever, putting your running shoes on, slipping the jacket on, doing what you need to do, feel yourself going down the stairs. You you go through, you visualize the process, yeah, not the outcome. And it turns out anytime you do that, that actually you have a, a lot greater success. And now, now what this, what brought the, does that make sense? On the process versus the outcome? Yeah, it does. I just think that a lot of times, uh, I think this is true for, I mean, this goes back to our podcast on the fetishization of possibility, right? Right. That a lot of times we think about outcomes only, and we don't like to think about the journey between point A and point B. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the outcome is what gives us pleasure or success or a feeling of success or hope or whatever. And the the actual work to get from point A to point B is not what we like thinking about. I think that's why we resist thinking about the process. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it involves, I mean, like anything that is worth doing, right, uh, involves a little bit of self-discipline, a little bit of effort, all those kinds of things. Our next right? uh, our next quote we're going to put up in the uh, coffee house is uh, G.K. Chesterton saying, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Which no one gets, and I think it's just brilliant. It's like, yeah, well, this building fell down, and we don't have a crane, but there's people trapped in there, and so the only other way that we could get them out is do a poor job of it, but it's worth doing, so we're going to do the best we can with what we got, right? Yeah. The more something's worth doing, the more it's worth doing, even if you can only do it badly. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, I mean, I just, I guess what I'm, so, so going back to, the idea of, of fetishizing possibility, right, is we like, it gives us pleasure mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. think about um, achievement, right? It right. gives us pleasure to think about being rich or being thin or being whatever, mm-hmm. the, whatever the goal is, being successful. It, I don't think it gives us pleasure in that way to right. think about the process of getting out of bed and, and putting our gym that's shoes why it and takes opening discipline. the door and going for a run. And that's why it takes discipline is right. that you have to, um, you have to, be willing to, um, to to visualize the process, even though it doesn't give you as much bang for your buck, right? Um, I think, well, and then let's take this farther. What got us talking about this is there was an article that came out a couple weeks ago where there was a study 
and it was a massive breakthrough. This was all over the internet a couple weeks ago. Um, they took two groups of people and they immobilized their arms like they had broken their wrist or something. And they showed them exercises beforehand and measured their strength and everything. And then they didn't do anything with the control group. And the other half, they had them visualize their, um, the, the type of exercise that would build that muscle that had been immobilized. That, and so this is, has, has a lot to do with um, people who have been hurt or maybe astronauts or something like that, you know, and places where you lose muscle mass. So after six weeks or so, well, I can't remember how long the study was. Um, I should probably pull the article up. And look it at was it. in the Journal of Neurophysiology, so yeah. says Google. Good. And so when they did, when they pulled them out, there was a massive difference in the people who had did this deep visualization of the exercises. And it mapped how much they did. It mapped exactly whether or not how much muscle they lost or didn't lose or even gained a little. And so it turns out that you can actually create muscle or make changes in your body through visualization. And obviously that makes sense because the, the brain is what controls what's going to send the human growth hormone, what's going to send these things here and there, whatever. And evidently you can trick your brain into thinking that you worked out. Well, I mean, isn't this kind of like, what is it called, plyometrics or whatever? Well, that's when you hold, when you tense, right? Right. So these, these guys weren't actually no. doing any kind of no. physical action. They were merely... I, Im, Im, but even if their wrist was immobilized, couldn't they like? What I'm saying is, could they do certain like? No, you can like like if you things? put my if you put my legs in a cast and they were held straight, and I very carefully felt myself doing deep squats for several minutes a day. Mm-hmm. They're claiming that you would lose less muscle mass, and it looks like. I may be able to actually image doing squats like in day-to-day life several times a day and maybe actually gain muscle mass. Hmm. And it's because and that makes sense because it's not like – it's a chemical process that causes a muscle to grow and your brain is in control of that. Now, you're not going to get hypertrophy. Yeah. You're not going to get the tearing of muscle fibers and then that doubling and stuff. So you're not that. really going to grow in strength. But that's only one way that muscles grow, though. See, this is kind of strange to me because, I mean, if – if this is true, right, that your muscles could grow with only an interact, like a, a sort of brain-mind kind of thing going on, because mm-hmm. the brain's directing the dis- distribution of HGH and whatever else. I mean, isn't that? I mean, isn't that kind of like taking steroids or something, right? That it's like, I mean, doesn't it seem like that could be kind of turned into a pill or weaponized or whatever? I mean, it could right? be. It could certainly the, be used as an advantage. Yeah. I mean, you could, um, but it's it's also interesting. It just it, I'm I'm more interested in it as an allegory. Like, okay, let's take this out of something. I mean, all these things are physical, but let's take it out of the realm of sports. The example I gave you was getting up and jogging. You and well, I. Well, there's another great example, which is like Tiger Woods or any great golfer, right? right? Is like visualization is a huge part of golf, right? You visualize. Right. Your successful shot, you know, the arc of the ball, where it's going to land, how it will bounce, all that kind of stuff, how right. you'll swing. Okay, but you, you and I both write. Okay. So we've talked a lot about, like, you and I have talked about techniques, about writing and how different writers write and what time of day and whether you do it in binges or you do it 
you know, just an hour a day. Like Hemingway used to write every single day for a certain amount of time, and he would always stop when he knew what the next paragraph was. Yeah. So that he had something to start with the next day so that he wasn't ever looking at a blank page. Right, and that goes to, like, the the artist's way approach, too. Right. The, the morning pages. Right, so the thing is, is that... So let's let's look at that for this perspective. If I... I have trouble getting myself to write. I tend to write in binges. I finally force myself to sit down and write. About 15 minutes in, I get loosened up and I remember how much I love it. And I literally sit there and write for six to eight hours until my back is killing me and I'm like, I need to get up and go do something. I just will binge write. And then I won't write for two weeks. I just write in these. And some great writers have written like that. But what if I said, look, I'm not going to stress myself out. I'm not even going to try to write. But I want to start writing in the morning before I, for a half an hour before I get in the shower or after I get out of the shower before I come to work or something. And I start visualizing myself doing that, going through the motions of doing that. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm visualizing tomorrow morning. I see myself getting up. I, get, I open the screen. I see this. And I make it so real that I can feel the keys on my hand. It's like then at some point when you actually attempt to do it, you've got some momentum because we know from the way brain science works is whatever wire fires together, wires together, these synapses, right? And so you're creating the architecture, the synaptic architecture, that to, to make it easier to get that done. You kind of wonder if it could be done artificially. Maybe. And not so much that, like, somebody would have some sort of, you know, x-ray gun or something that they're going to point at your brain and like make it do stuff but more that um you could you could almost set up a uh like a, a psychological like a, a psychologist could set up a program for a client right mm-hmm. or or say a rehabilitation officer at a prison right could set up a kind of program of meditation or visualization for somebody you know in prison right. to rehabilitate them or whatever no there's a there's an example of this um um, one of the recovery models that I studied, um, they use visualization when you're in no danger of taking that drink or acting out in this, you know, like a sex addiction or something like that. You're in no danger. And, you're, and so you sit down and you put yourself through the mental process of all the triggers and you create that pain that thing you're trying to numb that you don't want to think about that makes you want to take that drink. And then you you get it to where you're actually starting to feel the temptation, right? And then you say, okay, well, how will I feel after I've made that decision? And you out loud tell you objectively from the past, look, I'm yeah. going to wake up. I'm going to have a headache. I'm going to have to try to get ready for work. I'm going to be late because now I'm hungover. Then I'm going to have to drink some more to try to get the hangover to go away. Or you, you go through all that. And then you go, well, what do I think is true? Well, I don't think that that's what this is for. I don't think that that's how I want to live. I think that it would be better to, and you, and you objectively say all So basically, you, when you're not in any kind of danger, you bring up the pain, and then you address it objectively in the way. And so basically, you're practicing. You're going yeah. down the course. You know what this reminds me of is um, like preparing for a debate. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I mean, the most famous examples, right, are presidential debates, you know, and and for the presidential debates, usually the candidates prepare by having somebody stand in for the other presidential candidate and they practice debating that person. But the idea is that, you know, you're 
you're deliberately trying to figure out what counter arguments the other person is going to make, mm-hmm. and then deliberately trying to find ways to counteract those arguments, right, and, and to and to answer them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's that's really the process that we're describing when it comes to because uh, because this is different. I think it's really different than athletic performance, right? Because in athletic performance, in many ways, you already have a script to follow, right? You know, like how to swing a golf club. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what what you're supposed to do, right? right. Um, whereas I think in a lot of life, the script is not so precise, right? I mean, maybe it's as precise as I need to get up and put on my gym shoes and go for a run, but maybe mm-hmm. it's less less precise than that, in that the the experiences aren't as repetitious or something as they might be in sports. Um, and so the the script ha- the script that you're playing in your mind has to be flexible enough to be able to address the situation that you're trying to, right. to address. You know, it's funny. I asked um, Jason Womack one time. He's a guy that used to work for the David Allen Company. and He's his own consultant now. He's got his own podcast. If you're listening, Jason, hi. Um, and um, I said, you know, how would you pull all this off? I mean, he started off as a high school teacher, ended up being a presenter for the David Allen Company and a consultant. Then he ends up starting his own gig, has his own book out. Um um, I said, your best just got better, I think is the name of his book. And I asked him, how'd you do all this? And he goes, oh, I read Shad's book. I'm like, what? And he said, about Shad, Hel- Shad Helmstutter wrote this book called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's in that business, positive thinking, kind of slightly new agey kind of world. Self-help. Yeah. Self-help booky thing. But it's interesting. He, he makes the claim that they've done studies and some like, like in the high, high percentage of the statements that a kid hears by the time he's seven or eight years old are negative. No, don't do that. Get right. off of that. No, you put that down. Stop doing that. Right. You know, and or, or negatives about them. You're gonna. You're a bad boy when you do that. You know, or it's like, you know. And so he says that everybody has self talk. Yeah. And so he says, well, no, you need to you need to be very strategic about your self talk. Hmm. And I think that that's kind of what that's kind of what that less than scientific approach has kind of tapped into is some of this. So if you tell yourself, like he'll say, you would sit there and you could even make tapes and listen to him that says, I do not smoke. I never smoke. I don't enjoy the smell of cigarettes. Hmm. And you can sit there and smoke a cigarette while you're listening to this. Right. But if you do that long enough, eventually one day you'll be lighting a cigarette and the law of non-contradiction kicks in because your brain sees these two things as an equal reality. Right. I don't smoke. And you have a cigarette you're lighting. And then you have to create a narrative somehow to fix it. And so you go, oh, I quit. <laughs> yeah. And so you quit. You just don't want it anymore, right? And it sneaks up on you. So now whether or not that actually works, I haven't really put it to the test. But um, I think that that's kind of tapping into that same thing. Yeah. You're messing with your picture and the the we're the kind of hardware that the software affects the hardware, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, what's so funny to me about this is I think a lot of times we think about it in like moralistic terms. Right. Right? Like, okay, so you can't wake up at 5 in the morning to go running because you're bad. You're bad. You're undisciplined. Right. Yeah, you're you're a you're jerk, lazy. Right? Yeah. You need to go to confession and confess um, um sloth. And this yeah, this goes back to the whole like right brain left brain thing. Right. Right? That that's a very left brain approach that's linguistic-based and very kind of, like, condemnatory and controlling. Right. And very closed to, like, new ideas or closed to new approaches or whatever. Mm -hmm. Very uncreative, Mm -hmm. right? Where the left brain kind of, like, 
sees everything in this kind of black white kind of matrix like it's either right or it's wrong it's mm-hmm. either good or it's bad right and it always is thinking in that kind of binary way mm-hmm. and that there's something really important about tapping into the right brain kind of creative side even though of course there's all this controversy about location and whatever in the brain but well what well, we call it right and left but right. really they're kind of like we know that distributed faculties that, within right? the, so, the hamburger that's in our heads you know yeah. uh yeah but it's like somehow we're not good at tapping into the right brain all the time mm-hmm. right or 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 even we're not good at balancing out the two kind of dynamisms right because I, I mean in our culture I, I feel like there are kind of like the creative types right, right? We, we that's like a term people use like create oh they're a creative type he's a creative type she's a creative type and that what we mean is that person is really creative they can come up with interesting art or whatever and new ideas but they're totally undisciplined Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, or or then we 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 also refer to like type A personalities or people that are disciplined, and we think of them. As, I mean, that's, that's sort of like a left brain kind of right. thing, where it's like, okay, so we know that this person can accomplish tasks, right? But they're probably not very right. creative. Like, a, like if you, like if you and I were the if you and I were the odd couple, exactly. Then I would I would be Felix, or you'd be Felix. You'd be the you'd be the Tony Randall character, and I'd be the Jack Klugman character. Yeah, this is like way before my time. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be. I'd be. Shows how old you are and how young I am. They're re- they're redoing <laughs> it actually now. They're redoing the odd couple. But yeah, <sighs> one's one's. Is, but they're redoing, redoing Spider Man for like the eighteenth time. Yeah, ridiculous. because it's Spider Man, and it's okay, worth anyway. redoing. Um, so it seems like, but here's the thing. Here's the thing is that. There's a book. Have you ever read Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain? Yeah. Yeah. And she shows that there are very drawing is about a way of seeing. Yeah. If you can write legibly, you've got enough manual dexterity to draw. Right. It's about seeing. And there are certain ways you can actually hack yourself and do certain exercises to activate that right brain. And in that book she talks about there's a few to show you that this is true to get you to trust her and try it. She gives you some examples of when this happens naturally in our lives, or at least semi-culturally, because one of them is, and I see this all the time, I do it on purpose sometimes, is uh, driving in light but light to moderate traffic, where it's like you can handle it, it's no big deal, you're not worried, but there's enough shifting patterns and stuff that that actually, that actually makes your right brain kick in. So I have tons of, I've got apps on my cell phone for capturing ideas while I'm driving hands free, because I will be have I'll have a trouble with some kind of situation or something, and I'll be just driving in to work, and also I go, oh, here's what we could, and I'm like, remember, it's, and it's like, and it's I gotta like, start. It's like how ideas come to people in the shower all the time. Exactly. Right, because it's like you're not you're not focused on accomplishing a task that is right or wrong or good or bad. You're just having an experience, right, that is basically automatic. Right. Uh, and, and hopefully pleasurable, right? If you're taking a hot shower, <laughs> not <Right>. too hot. <laughs> and the um, and, and and the thing is, is that these things are so chemical, right? So stuff. I mean, I I I've I've been ADD pretty much most of my life. I was on Ritalin at one point, and and so I've read Rady's book. I've driven to distraction. I've read quite a bit of stuff on attention deficit disorder. And what is this attentional thing? And chemically, how can you work on it and everything? And one of the things that they um, they talk about is um, affirmation versus like negative reinforcement and its relationship to dopamine, hmm. which is the chemical that makes you be able to pay attention and, and, and maintain focus and study and remember. So if you're a kid and I go, 
look, you're stupid. And you're going to flunk this test. You're going to mess it up because you always do. And you're no good and you might as well just go get a job where you don't have to know anything because you're not going to be able to do this. So you can clip the recording right there and just save the last 20 seconds and then use that as a way to negatively reinforce things, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you want to feel bad about yourself, (laughs) If you want to feel bad about yourself, just listen to Andrew say that a thousand times. Right. So, But what's funny is that when I say all that negative stuff to you, that actually causes the level of dopamine in your brain to go down. They can't, is, they can't see the gesture that you're doing. You have to describe oh, it. Oh, uh, my Andrew, I, Andrew I have my hand in the air. His left hand as if it were like <laughs> the corner of a countertop. He's slowly lowering see, the countertop. We need a video podcast. By lowering his left Okay, arm. so it lowers your dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a spectacular visualization. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I'm working on my right brain techniques <laughs> good, here. Good, good. Yeah. So the dopamine my goes down, scene. and it's a, it's, a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because you say you suck and you're no good and you're going to flunk this test. That literally causes a chemical change in the kid to make him more likely to flunk the test. Wait, wait, wait. So are you saying that if I just make a recording that says I am a billionaire, I am a billionaire, no, no, I am no, no, a billionaire, no, 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 no. that I'll become a billionaire? No, but I'm saying that if I say to a kid, I mean, you're fine. You got this. You can, you can do anything you need to do. The, the, the answers are inside you. You understand this. I've talked to you about it. You got this. It's no problem. You give them this affirmation. The actual chemical that makes that outcome more likely will increase with positive reinforcement like that. Hmm. That affirmation causes dopamine to go up and makes that's the exact chemical that will make them do well on the test. Right? So it's um there's something so the, so these things aren't these aren't this isn't just magic. Yeah, right? well and it goes back to that um, the zero hour study, right? The kids that oh, exercise yeah, before yeah, they went to class. Yeah. Right, Naperville, Illinois. Right, the kids that exercise before class did better than the kids. That that's Brady's book, yeah. But you know, the, the other thing Smart. about that that's really funny to me. Uh, it just reminds me of China, right? Mm-hmm. And and this might sound really strange, but in a lot of places in China, mm-hmm. early in the morning, like real early in the morning, four thirty, five thirty in the morning, everybody in your neighborhood goes out to the public square and dances for like an hour. Are the dancing they're doing Tai Chi. No, like dancing. Well, it depends on the neighborhood, right? Some right. people do Tai Chi every morning. But some people just like dance, like they play music and dance. They dance. Yeah, and they just like dance with everybody. Like it's just, you know, it's like a square dance or something, you know, for us. You've got to do the podcast on Dancing Mania. Oh, uh, I know, I know, right? I keep forgetting about that no, one. That's why we got to do that one. Well, we can, we can talk about this phenomenon too. But it's just really interesting that because that would be a kind of like both a physical exercise kind of thing. Right. And this kind of right brain unstructured experience. Right, that maybe prepares you for happiness for that day. It makes you feel good. Well, you know, there's a wait, wait. Okay, so there's another there's another thing I wanted to, to mention though when you were talking about all the dopamine receptors and encoding things and scripts and whatever. This book, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, I want to say it's uh, he's a psychologist named something like I want to say Ken Carlson, but that's not quite right. But he wrote a book about um, uh, hardwiring happiness. Hmm. Have you heard of this? No. Okay, but it's, it's, it's all these same ideas kind of wrapped in the same you talk, thing. talk, I'll look it up. So um, basically the idea is that uh, our, our brain is programmed to respond uh, to negative reinforcement. Rick Hansen. Yes, Rick Hansen. So it's, our brain is programmed to respond to negative reinforcement more significantly than it does to positive reinforcement because of, I mean, and this goes back to like evolution or whatever, right? Right. Like we had our evolutionary ancestors, lizard brain, all this kind of stuff that basically 
if you made a mistake, if you didn't pay attention to negative information. Lizard brain, you mean reptilians? Whatever, right? So like Hidden reptilians? Yeah, so if you, if you didn't pay attention to the <laughs> negative information, like, oh, there's a saber-toothed tiger chasing me, right, right. Then you might not ever have another chance to eat, right? Uh, and so negative information was more important than positive information. But the problem is, right, when you live in a comfy society like ours, right. and you're always at a comfortable temperature, and you always have plenty of food to eat, right. and you always have electric lights or whatever, uh, that it's easy for us to overfocus on negative information because of that, like, uh, evolutionary ancestry. Right. No, it's a, yeah, I, just, I just heard they were talking about this on NPR the other day about how we are programmed evolutionarily to be, have a hair trigger for fear. Because that's super important right? if you're on the savanna. Right. Every little twig snap. I mean, they say sometimes that the ADD thing is the hunter-gatherer brain. Sure, sure. And that the, the non-ADD people are kind of the agrarian brain because there's not much going to happen. They're just yeah. standing around watching the wheat grow. Or a, but if you're out in the woods hunting, every little click, twig snap, Everything, every little thing that we would consider a distraction is super important information when you're hunting, right, you know, right. when you're trying not to get eaten, well, you know. Yeah, so it gives you um, – I mean, I think the way that Rick Hansen puts it is helpful, right, that it's like that n- focus on negative information was really important and maybe still is in certain circumstances like emergency situations right. or in combat or something. Right. Um, but on a sort of day-to-day level, it's actually not helpful. Right, because mm-hmm. that's not how our lives go. Right, if somebody flips you off in traffic, that might set you off and make you upset for the rest of the day. But right. really, it's not that important. Right. Right. The 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 more important information is, say, maybe what will be in your inbox at at work in the morning, or or what your spouse or child says to you, or whatever. Right. And and that's there's a there, it's very easy for us to overfocus on unimportant negative information. Mm-hmm. So he has this strategy. I don't know if it works. I haven't read his book yet, but I hope to. You know, you know, we but, talk about a lot of books we haven't read. Right. I know, podcast. right? Well, we just need to read more before we <laughs> do just, more podcasts, just, right? But he, there's just so much to out but there. The, the, principle is like, really, the principle is very simple, right? The, the idea is that if you have a positive experience of any kind, right? Like you, you have an enjoyable meal or a good conversation, somebody compliments you, anything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you just f- deliberately focus on that right. for like 10 or 20 seconds. Oh, Okay, and that what and so he quotes that same that same idea that you mentioned, right? The neurons that fire together wire together, mm-hmm. right? Like the family that prays together stays together, <laughs> right? Uh, in that, so he quotes that idea and says, look, if you if you deliberately focus on the positive information that's coming in, yeah, then you're going to rewire your brain to prioritize that information over against the negative stuff. Hmm. I thought, I mean, I, I don't know if it if well, that. That's the thing I, mean, I, I mean, like how. I don't think our brain scan things are sophisticated enough to really see that happening, but I totally understand the concept. It makes perfect sense. I think that, how to say it, it's like we we overreact or underreact. The problem is that we have this ancient brain, right? And this ancient brain is constantly mistaking things because we had real clear edges to the stress, when you're when you're a hunter gatherer, I'm standing around looking for something to kill and eat. Oh crap! There's a tiger. <laughs> Run from the tiger. Climb the tree. Sit there and wait it out. If the tiger goes away. Climb back down. Problem's over. We have a very clear problem. It was called a tiger, right? But we, now we just carry this ambient, constant stress. But you know, I get an email from 
someone with power over me saying, hey, could you, could you swing by next time you're here? I know it's, not, it's nothing. But you're just part, it's, there's an uncertainty, and we take that uncertainty as like stress. Or if someone flips you off in traffic, or if something, we take that like fight or flight. Right, right. right? Which, is, which is actually a, not a helpful response right. in these cases. You know, David Allen has that whole um, concept of mind like water. And he talks about how it's a martial arts concept where the, the surface of the water is still, right? So if you throw a pebble in it, it reacts exactly appropriately and it does pebble. You see the yeah. ripples come out. If you throw an actual boulder in it, it will respond appropriately. It boulder waves, right? But you never see a still a still pond that you throw a pebble in and it does boulder waves. Right. It doesn't tense up before the rock hits because it's scared. It, doesn't, it just reacts right. completely appropriately because it's at peace. It's still, right? Yeah. And then, of course, he uses that as an analogy to get everything out of your head and into a system. And that way, you're, you know, you're, you can react, right? But I think there's something to that on that level, these chemical things. But, and so I, th- I guess what the big picture of all of this is, is, I mean, it's kind of like there's been a big modern thing like self-hacks, hacking, self-hacking and life hacks and all that. And a lot of that is like, you know, if you need to take that to work with you, leave it in front of the front door, you know, stuff. Okay, you know, yeah. your old batteries, put them together well, with a rubber band and do this. or that. But it's, and then, you know, the, you have to get new. It's a, but really, this is as old as Aristotle or, you know, like Carol Wojtyla, where you can, you can act on yourself. You can act in a way that you are both the subject and object of your actions. Right. And so we're finally coming into a place where we, we, we evolved as one kind of being. We completely abandoned a ton of that in this nice Faustian bargain that we call civilization. Everything from diet to sleep to light to all the stuff that we've talked about a lot. But now we're entering in this really interesting time where everything we've bought with civilization, this understanding, we can use it to have self-knowledge about our physicality or even our ontology or our psychology us as chemical beings or even like we were talking about earthing last time, you know, like, or even our, you know, electrical beings. Right. And we can use what used to be culture or nature. We can now make through art and we can act on ourselves, you know? And, and yeah, no, it's, it's kind of a weird, but it's a I lot mean, of responsibility it, to do. all. Well, that. it's just funny <laughs> it's like, because it, it's like we, we built civilization and created these artificial things like houses and cities and electric lights. And now what? all of a sudden we're realizing, hey, a lot of this stuff's really unhealthy. We've got to figure out a way to get back to nature. But we don't really want to get back to nature because we don't want to live in the woods anymore. And we don't want to walk on a dirt floor and not be able to see at night. We right. want, so we figured out how to get red light bulbs, which are like little fires that don't keep you awake. Mm-hmm. And that way you can still read the book. Right. Before you, or you run Flux on your Mac, and I can still write on my book. Or you can find a way to, and, and this is crazy, but get a grounded floor. Right, I want to do so it. So that you're electrically grounded when you're walking around your house. If I was going to build, I, I have, I have a, a, a list in Evernote called My Ultimate House. Your dream house? Yeah, and I add stuff to it all the time. And one <laughs> of them, and related to this, I have, I've, I've just added a grounded floor. And I want the sleeping quarters to be set off from the house a little bit for the whole family mm-hmm. with like a little, just a little, like a little like walkway connecting it. And I want to be able to just like turn the main power off. Yeah. Like there's no, it's, there's nothing, 
there's no 60 hertz or whatever like buzzing around your head it's like camping or like the the the, the you know or like when the the storm knocks out the power like that kind of sleep yeah and that's different oh sure it's, it's a whole different ball game right i don't think it's good for us to be living with because i mean when i went to school in california we did um like old we redid old experiments in electromagnetism where you create magnetic fields by running a coil and all that stuff. I mean, sit, we're in the middle of a coil with a bunch of wires around us right now. Oh, yeah. Even if the lights aren't on. Right. That, you can't tell me that doesn't affect things, right? So, but, so I think it's, it's fascinating. We can, figure out, go, we can figure out who we are, and we can hack it in a way. And this visualization thing is part of that. But I think but it's really fascinating. I guess what, what's funny about it is that you've got competing interests at the same time, right? Like right. You've got that kind of... Um, that old uh, industrial civilization, progress is progress is progress mindset right. that's continually building more and uh, more structures and more complex interactions with artificial realities, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be, you know, Wi-Fi or cell phone towers or mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, there are all kinds of, th- I mean, Wi-Fi on planes, you know, satellite dishes, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that's, uh, they just keep adding and adding and add, adding and then you have this kind of return to nature thing on the other side, you know, raw right. foods and all this kind of stuff with um, a, a kind of getting back to nature through art. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I, I think those two cultural tropes are going to be in continual conflict. I think they're going to merge. As I think the market will take care of it, and it already is. Because there's grass-fed organic beef at my Safeway now. Yeah. And there didn't used to be. Sure. And at first, it was like, I loved it at first because no one was buying it. And it would end up in the 50% off bin all the time. And now I'd just buy every drop of it I could get my hands on and freeze it. Yeah. And I was getting such cheap meat for a while. Now it's like you never see it there. Right. And there's more of it out. So people must be buying it, right? And um, I was at Whole Foods a while ago. And they're, I mean, talk about people that are dedicated to the vegetarian, veg- vegan lifestyle. But they have paleo chicken wraps. That chick, things with chicken in them that are like coconut wraps instead of tortillas, they're getting on the paleo thing. Yeah. Right? So it's like because it's market, right? So I think that – how to say it? I think that the, 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 where the real bang for our buck is is in places like um, our ancient brain says – our evolutionary brain says get sugar. You want sugar. You crave it. You want it. You react to it in this really powerful way that makes you want to get it. Why? Because things that are really, truly sweet are fairly rare in nature. And it's a certain time of year when the berries are really ripe or the fruits are really ripe. And there's a bunch of antioxidants and stuff that we need, vitamins, lots of vitamin C at once a year or something like that. And so we're built to love. But now we have sugar everywhere. And that's why everybody has diabetes. Right. Because we still crave it, but it's not rare. You know, and... Our evolutionary brain, a man sees a beautiful woman and enacts a sexual desire and you react in that way and all this stuff. The problem is, is that we can now have it ubiquitous and that is now that's given the rise to porn and stuff like that. So a lot of our problems are our ancient brain having a being having informed in the scarcity of this thing. But now we don't have a scarcity of that thing. So we end up binging. On those things, so, so I think hacking that way is something. But then it so, goes across the board. So how do we how do we visualize our way toward these two trends uh, merging? I think that you 
do what we're doing right now in the sense we talk about it in public. We examples of the things. We enact them ourselves and kind of listen to other people when they do that kind of stuff. And then you invest – if you see – we start, we start looking at the pattern like we just talked about with the sugar and with porn and all that stuff. And when you start seeing – if you're an entrepreneur and you see, oh, well, hey, like earthing, right? You, the grounding mats. Uh, that guy's the only one making those. And he saw, hey, we used to be walking around barefoot connected to the electromagnetic field of the earth. And now we all wear rubber shoes. Right. And so he said, I'm going to – we already have a ground in every outlet right. in the house. I'm going to create something you plug in, but you plug into a different part, and it makes it like you're outside. You can sleep on a sheet like you're outside. Yeah, That's ingenious. So there's the market filling in the gap. And I think that ultimately, especially in the West, because we're such consumers, that it's going to have to be through the market that it kind of comes around. You know? Yeah. I just, I just wonder about the government's role in these kinds of things. Well, in what way? Well, stopping or promoting or yeah. Well, I mean, if there are certain there are certain structural things in our society that yeah. are not natural, right? That's for sure. Um, so, for example, somebody came out with a uh, I think it was a radio or a cell phone that would actually uh, be powered by all of the electromagnetic junk in the air, mm-hmm. right? So basically, it had a special antenna that would collect. TV signals, radio signals, whatever, and turn that into electrical power <laughs> to run a cell phone. And you're just thinking, that can't be healthy, right? If there's all this stuff flying around right. in airwaves all the time, there's some way in which that probably isn't healthy. But I don't know. I can't visualize a way for the government but that being said, to, there's, uh, to come on board. Yeah, you know, it's like, um, well, the government has a negative side in in this, too. I mean, look at... Why are cows not eating grass as much? Why are they all eating corn? Well, because there's a corn subsidy, right? They don't have a corn subsidy in Australia. Or Ireland. And Ireland. And look, big surprise, all the dairy and most of the meat is grass-fed. Why? Because grass is cheap. The only way something gets cheaper than grass is if it's subsidized, right? right? So that's why I'm one of the few conservatives on earth you'll hear rooting for ethanol. Because I want to find something to do with the dang corn and soybeans that makes it more valuable than feeding it to the animals so that we can have low omega-6 and high omega-3 in our meat, you know? Oh, my goodness. Well. See, it's all inter- it is all interconnected. No, I know. Right? It, it is. It's like it's, it's, uh, that's, that, uh, it's, it's all interconnected. And it's, it's – uh, And the lack of omega-3 that we're not getting makes it easier to be ADD and all that. Which goes back full circle to what we were talking about earlier with the with the radi and the zero hour and the and the affirmation and dopamine and all that. Maybe we maybe you could yell at your kids a lot if they're eating natural meat all the time and get away with it. But we're screwing our kids up because we're feeding them the wrong stuff, both physically and verbally. Maybe it's an either or. You can't get away with both, and that's why we got people shooting up high schools or something. Oh my goodness! Well. Whether you can visualize your way toward physical health and muscle growth and psychological health and positive self-talk, I don't know. But I do think that Andrew and I need to visualize an end to the Over the Counter podcast. I'm Mark Eastcheck. And I am positive I'm Andrew Whaley. <laughs>